So, Bob, I have some questions here that the patrons have written in, and I thought we would read them, and you could answer them. What do you say, Bob? Well, I'll answer them with you. (laughs) This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist, a professor, and someone who occasionally posts um, weird pictures on Facebook with me wearing a hat that looks like a Santa situation. Who are you, Bob? No kidding. I'm I'm a person who doesn't do that. (laughs) Uh, I'm your old friend from graduate school and a therapist in practice here in Seattle as well. Bob Gettle, if you want to hire him as a therapist, people will often ask me for referrals, and I always give them Bob's name as one of my, I don't know, one, two, or three names. Bob's always in there. He's an excellent therapist. Thank you. With couples and adults for various issues. Uh, He's highly professional good listener. So email him at, what's your email? Bob at bobgettle.com. Bob at bobgettle.com. And you have a website, bobgettle.com? Yeah. Okay. And Gettle is spelled G-O-E-T-T-L-E. That's right. It's a weird name. Silent O. Yeah. Not too many words in the English language that have a silent O. It's true. Amoeba. Seems like it's probably originally a gotel. Would it be originally? It's G-O with the two dots, T-T-L-E-I-N. Gotel. Gertlein. Gertling. Yeah. All right. This person wrote in and wanted to know about if you're dating someone who has bipolar. I'm not, by the way, dating anybody that has bipolar disorder. Okay. Okay. I recently started dating someone. It's getting fairly serious. Straight out of the gate, she told me she had bipolar one. She told me her manic episodes have been severe enough that she's had to undergo inpatient treatment. I told her this wasn't a big deal, that lots of people are bipolar. What can I do to help her? What are some of the signs to look for when a manic episode is coming on? It's going really well, and I really want the relationship to work. What do you think, Bob? I think it's a great question. And wow, really cool that the person is thinking about this stuff and paying attention. And you and I can talk about uh, symptoms to look for. They call them prodromal symptoms. Um, But probably what that person will want to do is talk to his partner with bipolar disorder uh, and ask, what are the, what are the warning signs? Right. Yeah. My sentiments exactly. Good for you for thinking of this and good, good for your uh, partner for telling you up front. That's how you do this. That's how, you know, there's, there's no shame in it. You just, it's, it's all a matter of management and, and community helping and all that kind of stuff. So, Good for you and good for your partner. And yeah, that's the main thing you do. Just just ask her what what you would like, what she would like you to do. The other thing is, is talk with her clinicians. Um, if I was her clinician, I would love it if you reached out to me. Yeah. And there was a release of information to communicate with you. Uh, having It takes a village. And so every clinician, any clinician who knows what they're doing should absolutely appreciate that. But if you're looking for, you know, what prodromal uh, symptoms look like are, mania usually begins with a better mood, more energy. People tend to get more stuff done during this time. That's why people actually like uh, to be hypomanic. You know, slightly, slight, slightly manic is if everyone, every, believe me, if you've never been slightly manic, you want to be slightly manic. <laughs> You have more energy. You feel you have more. You have better self-esteem. You get a lot of stuff done. 
you are nice to people, people are attracted to you because you're energetic and you have ideas and and you're you're making connections, you're doing stuff. And um, so, uh, so people who are bipolar often will have long stretches of times of depression. Mm-hmm. And so it's sometimes hard to tell the difference between relapse and depression and emerging mania. You never know really until you just – time will tell. Um, the other thing is sometimes people can become hypomanic and stay hypomanic and not become uh, more – you know, higher on the mania scale. So you can't really know for sure. But anyway, so anyway, if you're, if you're wanting to know about the beginning of mania, that's what it looks like. Um, Changes in sleep. So at its pinnacle, uh, it might help to know what the pinnacle looks like because then you can sort of say, oh, I think we're heading in that direction. Good idea. So at its pinnacle, right, people don't sleep. They have erratic behavior. They can be quite grandiose at times. Like, you know, I'm going to be bigger than Beyonce or something, or I'm going to run for president of the United States, or, or let's remodel the house. Right. I got my hammer. Let's right. take a wall down. Yeah, let's take a wall down. Right. Right. So lots of changes, lots of hope, lots of uh, not so well thought out changes. They might quit their job. They might invest a lot of money in something quite shady. Um, they they start they can start using substances a lot during this time. Really fast, impulsive decisions. Right. That, that they will say are a great idea and seem clear to them at the time. Right. Yeah. They might, they often do, but they, it's not all the time, alienate people around them. Mm-hmm. You know, they might, oh, you're just bringing me down. Fuck you. They might uh, end relationships. They might start relationships. They might have sex randomly. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's not typical to their behavior. And they might even become psychotic, which is quite noticeable when it's happening, usually. Um, they might think that the neighbors are tuning into their thoughts or something. So, um, but there's a danger somewhere. Yeah, and not like, huh? I wonder if those people think of me like an active danger, right? Like something bad's going to happen, right? Which is another uh, thing about the human condition that is quite tragic is that psychosis is rarely a happy experience. You know, it's not like people hallucinate about like fairies that are helpful or voices that are nice to you somehow it's it's only always horrible yeah patron shira wrote in and said you are welcome to use my first name if you use this in the podcast uh she writes in sometimes i get hit with with horrible migraines and nausea it happened this week usually acupuncture takes the edge off but nothing has helped Today, I found that masturbation made a difference. Oh, sure. That makes sense. I finally feel some temporary temporary relief. I've read that oxytocin can help with pain, but I, but I was skeptical. Once I got started, though, I couldn't stop for close to an hour. I'm not a sex addict or anything, but this was amazing, and I finally can breathe a little better. Is this normal? Should I be worried? Will this become a problem? What do you think, Bob? I think masturbating for an hour is fine. Yeah. Um, what I think about migraine, though, as I understand, and it's been a while since I've read anything, but um, progressive muscle relaxation is a good preventative treatment, which is just a series of tensing and relaxing muscle groups through your body. Um, I won't bother with the details here. Maybe we'll put something up on a website or whatever. But in any case, um, that's been shown to be preventative for people having migraines. And really, it has to do with you know relaxing your body. 
the problem with migraine isn't necessarily body tension, but relaxing the body can help. Right. And Imitrex. And the other, there's other drugs that people can take when a migraine's coming on that actually can slow it down. One of my clients this week just told me she felt one coming on. She took her Imitrex, went away. Yeah, great. And migraine, I find, to be one of those things that there are common treatments. And if you have migraine, then you just start trial and erroring until you find something that works. And for some people, nothing works, or it kind of mm. works sometimes, or yeah. something. But anyway, uh, but there are some things that really work for a lot of for for some people and worth worth pursuing. Um, yeah, I agree with Bob. Uh, there's nothing wrong with masturbating for an hour; it's totally fine. Our society is way too judgy about sex, and particularly masturbation. There, I just want to say this to, to you, uh, Patron Shira, and to everyone else. There's nothing wrong with masturbating all day long, every day, for your entire life. There's nothing wrong with it. In the same way that there's nothing wrong with going fishing all day long, every day, for the rest of your life. Or reading a book every day for your entire life. Or going on a bike ride. There's nothing wrong with anything along with... If someone, if someone liked going you know, on a hike three hours a day, every day, would you say, oh, getting a little out of control with the hiking? You'd just be like, oh, great, good for you. Getting outside, enjoying yourself, you know, exercise, you know, good for you. You Somehow, what? You're not going to say they're hypomanic? Yeah, you're not going to say they're addicted to hiking. You're not going to say that uh, they got to go to rehab for their hiking habit or something. No, that... The only way any of these activities, including masturbation, become a problem is when it becomes a problem. Yeah. If it somehow interferes with something in your life, you know, if you're single and you don't have a lot of hobbies and, you know, you're still hanging out with your friends when you want to and you come home from work and you masturbate for six hours every day, it's not a problem. Now, for most people who do that kind of thing, it becomes a problem because of chafing or of uh, a compulsive nature of it where it – if you're doing it out of desperation, you know, you know, like it becomes – like – but the same could be said about hiking or fishing or anything. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, you know. It's, it, so in and of itself, especially the way you described it, it's like – Geez, when I masturbate for an hour, it helps my migraine. Rock on. Yeah. It, if you don't masturbate for an hour, the next migraine you have, there's something wrong with you. Like, why wouldn't you do what actually helps? Um, so, you know, I just want to say that. And this goes for men and women. There is nothing wrong with masturbating whenever you want. You can masturbate all you want. But the point is, is... As with hiking or reading books or going to movies or having a hamburger, you just have to figure out, you know, where does this fit in my life and is it, is it causing a problem in my life? I would like to eat a hamburger from Red Robin every day for the rest of my life, but this guess what? I can't because of the health effects of such a thing. Cholesterol, sodium, calories, sugar, probably in the bun or something. Probably, yeah. Um, 
I can't eat a hamburger every day. But if I did eat a hamburger, I'm not going to, you know, put myself in inpatient because I relapsed or something. It's just like, you know, that's life. There are things. So, you know, with masturbation, I mean, what, what could you imagine problems being because of masturbating, quote unquote, too much? Oh, uh, well, like you said, chafing. Um, I would say it might be a problem if it's interfering in, you know, like you have a sexual relationship with somebody and maybe it's getting in the way of your sexual connection with that person or maybe they're upset because your erotic energy goes into masturbating and, you know, they miss you or something. Yeah, then you got a problem, but it isn't a problem masturbation. It's a problem like, hey, we're not connecting the way. Right. Yeah. Right. You could fix that and masturbate, you know what I mean? I would say it might be a problem if it's feeding a lot of shame, but that doesn't mean you stop doing it. Right. Maybe that means you do it more. Right. Uh, but if it's feeding a lot of shame, you know, that's worth the peak. But it is, I wouldn't want to say that that's a problem. Right. Uh, I would say that it's the, sh- the shame's a problem, not the masturbation. Yeah, right. Um, so you could find that if you attack the shame and get rid of it, so to speak, that either the masturbation sustains or reduces, given whatever dynamic they have around shame or whatever. Right. Um, can you think of any other problem that you could think of besides that? Because those are pretty lightweight, you yeah. know what I mean? I'd say the main one would be judgment from other people yeah. or yeah. self. Yeah. There is nothing wrong with it. Yeah. Nothing at all. We are a fucked up society <laughs> that is incredibly stupid when it comes to this sort of thing. Drives me crazy. I mean, Shira, you're a wonderful person and you know, you're you're asking questions that are great. But you have absorbed a really just horrible notion from our society or whatever society you live in. Most societies have this have this issue. Just so, like everybody else, though, by the way. Right. Yeah. Um, and it has taken me, uh, and I'm still purging myself of this, you know, get, you know fielding your question, um, I, I'm not, I, I sound quite secure in my answer, but I'm not very secure because I have those voices in my head. That I, you know, incurred. That yeah, that's mas- what I love about you. What do you mean? Well, you're transparent and you don't have it all together, like, and you're able to say that. You know, so many people are full of shit and they, they don't say. They act like they got their shit together and it's important for them to have that persona, but I just love that about you. Oh, well, that's nice. I mean, I probably should be more transparent more often. I, I got a um, a eval back from a student who rated me last quarter and she or he said that I was, I came across like I was a perfect therapist or oh, something. Oh, wow. And that, actually, no, this is a mid-quarter evaluation. So by the end of the quarter, I didn't see this. But <laughs> so halfway through the quarter, this the student was saying, you know, he seems like he has it all together and I'm so insecure. And so it'd be helpful if he could talk about his flaws more as a therapist mm. or something. And so I probably could do better for sure. Um it's hard. Yeah. I mean, your patron's question, this is hard because this idea is hard of, yeah. of, you know, what will people think of me, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Am I weird or something? Yeah. Vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, there's just so many weird, um, you know, I, I, I always like to give this example to really point out just how dumb we are as a society. So let's say you go on a hike for four hours um, on a, on a weekend and you go to work on Monday and you go to the office and they, Oh, what'd you do this weekend? You're like, Oh, I went on a four hour hike. Right. Like, Oh, great. Now let's say you masturbated for four hours and it was glorious as much as any hike could be anyway. 
and you, you know, maybe even masturbate while you're hiking. I don't know. But you, some, something, you know, you masturbate for four hours. You, you go to work th- on Monday. They're like, what'd you do this weekend? How many people are going to be like, oh, I masturbated for four hours? Like, that has probably never happened in the history of, of the world, of, of our society. And do you know how dumb that is? Do you know how stupid <laughs> that is? That is, like, so dumb. People should be able to be like, I masturbated for four hours. Man, it was glorious. Now, a lot of people will be like, eh, TMI. The only reason why you're saying that is because you've you've been injected with shame around sex. Right. You know, if we were injected with shame around hiking, then you'd be like, ew, TMI. I don't want to hear about your fucking hiking. You know, it's just like, we are so dumb and we do it to ourselves. We make these rules, you know? We made them. Yeah, we And we keep at them. Yeah. So, Shira, masturbate away. It's a wonderful thing. It releases tons of wonderful chemicals into the brain. It, it's a good time. Uh, why not? It's not a, you know, it's not like crack cocaine or some other medicine with side effects. Um, and it helps you with your headache. And it helps with your headache. Uh, so, you know, absolutely. As they say around here, you deserve it. Yeah. <laughs> Masturbate this weekend because you deserve it. Um, all right. Bad trauma therapy. I have an email here. Should we, should we invite the patrons to write in? Just check the box if you masturbated this week. Tell us how to go. Um, how many times on a scale? How enjoyable? Um, I don't know. Winner gets the scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be hilarious. <laughs> um, all right. Email here. In a recent episode, you talked about your multi-step treatment plan for trauma. I was intrigued by two of the early steps, which had to do with the client learning to rate their level of distress on a 10-point scale and then determining multiple ways to decrease their level of distress. I suffer from PTSD due to a long history of childhood abuse, I didn't seek help until about three years ago. I'm in my mid-40s. Since then, I have developed a good therapeutic relationship with my therapist. However, he does not follow your model. And after I find, and, and, uh, and I often find after a session that I experience derealization and increased PTSD symptoms that can last for days. I don't display much, much emotion, and I have a very difficult time recognizing emotion in myself. I tend to try to process process things intellectually. I don't usually realize I have have been I don't usually realize I've been highly stressed until after I leave my therapist's office and I find myself zoned out and shaking in my car. Oh, wow. Can you please do an episode covering how people like me can become aware of their level of distress and how to decrease the level of distress? Are there any books or articles that I could use as instructional materials? If you choose to do an episode on this question, please don't use my name or location. Thanks for the assistance. Bob, what do you think? I think that person wrote a really articulate description of their experience. Really fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and highlighted uh, something I'm wanting her, her, him, them to talk to their counselor about, which is when I leave session, I'm worse in this particular way, more symptoms, et cetera. It probably means they're going too fast. Right. Yeah. So. No, yeah. So, wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is horrifying to me. Yeah. This is horrifying to me. You are describing 
a scenario where I'm not there. I can't say for sure, but I agree with Bob. It sounds like the therapy is harming you. Your therapist doesn't know what they're doing. Now, maybe your therapist does know, and if they were sitting here, they'd be like, well, we did this and we did that. So maybe there's a whole other side of the story. But from your description, this is classic harmful trauma therapy, quote unquote trauma therapy, or therapy that doesn't know how to do good work and how to avoid harming, you know. So at the very least, this therapy is not helping you. Um, And at worst, this therapy could actually be making your PTSD worse and your dissociation worse, more ingrained. Because as I talk about in my therapy model, which I'll lay out here, I keep keep sort of um, re-articulating it. I used to have just three steps, but now I kind of break out few more, so I have five steps. Yeah, work in progress. Yeah. So number one is commitment to the treatment. So the client has to understand the treatment and commit to it. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's important. You, you know, as a therapist, you can't... So all the rest of the four steps have to be fully understood by the client. Oh, yeah. And the client has to commit to it. Therapy should make sense. Yeah. Two, step two is demonstrated ongoing emotional awareness. So I used to say you know, awareness, emotional awareness skills. But now I say demonstrated ongoing emotional awareness, meaning that the therapist has had the ongoing emotional awareness demonstrated to them. It's not just a client saying, oh yeah, I'm aware, or one session where they seem to be aware of their distress level. This is ongoing over, you know, the span of a number of sessions where the client sits down on the couch and says, I have been keeping a log of my distress and it went from here to here on this day and this is why and, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Now, for many trauma victims, they will not, they will be developing step two for literally 10 years. And that is what's necessary. You cannot go to step three, four, and five until step two is done. What this client is saying who wrote in is they're not very aware of their emotions. Yeah. So how the fuck can you start talking about trauma when the client doesn't even know their own emotional state yet, which God bless this person because they've been through a bunch of shit and that's why they cut themselves off from their emotions unconsciously, right? Yeah, they right. learn it's a coping style coping. they learned as a young person, I'm guessing. If they're suffering from derealization, I'm guessing they were abused as a very young person. So say more about that. Why why do you say that? Well, dissociation in my well, I don't know, you tell me, but my my experience dissociation is something that humans have the capacity for that they're born with, but can only kick in if the brain isn't fully developed yet. So, in other words, if you live a life of non-trauma and then you're significantly traumatized for say, you know, a year or something oh, at, yeah, at yeah. the age of 22. Right, right, right you're not going to develop dissociation. Yeah, gotcha. Um, because the brain has sort of solidified with its approach to stress. Right. When you're two, three, four years old, there's a capacity for, uh, a very useful capacity for dissociation in those sure. circumstances. But when those neurons become strengthened, the dissociation reaction sustains into adulthood when it's not really necessary. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so, so step two is demonstrated ongoing emotional awareness. And again, what that looks like in my practice is the client comes in and says things like, um, 
I asked them, you know, so how is your, and, and they know this is step two. I will say we're in step two. And until you demonstrate to me that you're emotionally aware of things, then we're not moving forward because that's the whole reason for this, you know, because I don't want to harm you. And so, um, and like I said, I'll have some clients where they'll be like, I have, I've, I've never known what yeah, I felt. That happens with my people a lot. Yeah. I, just, I have no idea. What do you mean? Right. Like, and so we start on basics, like, Start getting so a basic level awareness is just you know becoming aware of things below your neckline, you yeah. know, like how does your chest feel, how do your arms feel, how do your legs feel, you know, like that's a, an awareness to know emotion, it it's begins there. Yeah. And some people they don't know what's happening in their torso because they learned in an early in life to just cut themselves off from their bodies, right? So, anyway, um. So that's number two. Number th the step three is demonstrated ongoing distress regulation efficacy. <laughs> so it's a lot of words, but so it's demonstrated ongoing effective distress regulation. So not just like, oh yeah, I have a couple skills. You know, it's like the person is effective. They're good at reducing their distress, and they have multiple very quick ways. You know. A very common thing that I'll get from people when we start this step is they're like, you'll know, be like, so how do you reduce your distress? Well, a lot of people will say, like, I have no way. But if they do have a way, it's something like, well, I go hiking or something. And it's like, well, you can't go hiking when, in the middle of the day at work. So we need, we need 10 to 20 things that you can do at your desk at work. Yeah. Or while you're talking to someone and they trigger you. You know what I mean? So this is like obviously knowing your triggers, but it's also, it's typically things like deep breathing positive self-talk, grounding things, um, getting away from certain situations, avoiding cer certain situations, um, calling someone or going to somebody nearby that, you know, that's right there, maybe their, their pet animal, <laughs> going for a walk around the block. You know, there's just a lot of things that people can do. And, uh, I mean, you, you teach this in DBT mm -hmm. all the time. So what do you teach people? All those things. Um, I have my people make a kit. Mm. And actually, next week is show and tell week. People are going to bring their kits in. What does that mean? It means, you know, a shoebox or a list on your phone or something of things that I do, specific things that I do when I'm distressed with the idea that I don't have to invent the wheel at a time when I can't think. Right. So, so uh, practice, of course. And also, you know, there's this drawer in my dresser at home or or a shoebox that I keep in my car, whatever, wherever the distress could take place, where I've got access to... Two cans of Diet Coke, bar of chocolate, a movie pass, a card I wrote to myself when I wasn't distressed, a card somebody wrote to me when they weren't when I you know wrote to me for when I am distressed, a gift card to Nordstrom so I can do some retail therapy, any fucking thing, you know uh, something that smells good, something that looks good, a picture of my kid, whatever it doesn't matter. Wow, those yeah. are great. Yeah, and um, the one thing is there's things that a person can do when their body is you know charged, which is the way it is, and these kinds of things. Which is just ice. Like literally get a bag, fill it with ice and water, like a bag of frozen corn or those flexi things, or a bowl full of ice and water. Um, hold your breath, dunk your face, or hold your breath and put the thing over your eyes. You got to get your eyelids and will actually calm your nervous system down significantly pretty quick, 15, 30 seconds. So cold, wet, hold your breath. It's called the dive reflex. You can't do it if you have a cardiac problem because that can induce a heart attack. But if you're heart healthy, it's safe to do. It's what whales do when they dive. It's what humans do who can hold their breath, you know, for 13 minutes underwater. 
they just have a good dive reflex. You can access it by cold, wet, hold your breath. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, I love that idea about having a a box or a list or something that, that you can go to. I mean, I've done things similar to that, but yeah. maybe not quite as, um, I don't know, ceremonialized as that, which is which is great. And right, you're smart to point out that in the moment, you can't, if you're trying to come up with a distress tolerance uh, or distress reducing technique in the moment, you're going to fail because yeah. you're going to be uh, flooded, overwhelmed. So you need to have tried and true things that you have developed prior and you either have memorized them or you have a list and you know exactly what to do. So this step can take a long time too. Yeah, it can. This, this step can take years. Yeah, it can. Uh, I've had people where, you know, they have a pretty robust system of distress regulation, but they can only get themselves from like an eight to a six. Yeah. You know, and for, you know, on a scale from one to 10. Right. And, or sometimes it doesn't work at all because yeah, it's just really hard. You know, it's just really hard. I think it doesn't work at all. It's going to be a pretty typical experience for most everybody and shouldn't be discouraging. It's like, it just sometimes isn't going to fucking work. Right. Yeah. But I guess I should say like the person, like I'm thinking of one client that I saw for a long time in step three and she every week would come in pretty stressed out and had, you know, a lot of awareness and a lot of uh, effective skills, but it was, she was just, she seemed to be kind of in a constant state of being dissociative yeah. and flooded and mm-hmm. really having a hard time mm-hmm. effectively getting her number down to like a three or a two. Right. Um, and so, so you can't go on to step four until you see someone yeah. having a pretty easy time with getting their number down right. um, most of the time. Now, what do you think of the idea that if I'm dissociated, my number is actually pretty high and I've numbed out or checked out or whatever? Well, that's a part of emotional awareness yeah. is the ability to know when you're dissociating, right. which is a complicated thing. But yeah. And most people, when I first treat, treat them, have no idea that they're dissociative, but uh, pretty quickly we can identify signs, you yeah. know, they'll say like, oh yeah, you know, like a common scenario is I'm working with a client and we get into some hairy material and I'll, I'll notice that they're probably dissociating in session. And I'll say, are you dissociating? Cause we have that language, you know, we've, we've been, we've discussed it and they know. Yeah. And so at first they'll be like, uh, no, I'm okay. And mm-hmm. then like five, 10 minutes later, they'll be like, oh, can I re-answer the question you asked me, Tim? Yeah, I think I am dissociating. Yeah, good. Um, so, to so the purpose of knowing your emotional state is so that you can take action to help yourself out. Um, good sentence. So, and you can ask for help. You know what I mean. And you, one of the things in therapy that will be helpful is. If you're too stressed out in therapy, you should not be going down a road of increasing your stress level, right? You know, it, if you as a weightlifter can only lift 100 pounds, you shouldn't be trying to lift 500 pounds. You're going to kill yourself. Yeah. So, uh, but the only way you know if you're overlifting is if you're aware of your emotional state. And for some people, it takes a long time. Anyway, step four is trauma narrative experimentation and this is baby steps so so this is after lots of 
demonstrated awareness, lots of demonstrated effect, effect, eff- efficacy of reducing your distress level. Then you start experimenting with your trauma narrative. You start talking about your traumas, but in very small ways. So what I tell people is, if the most horrible tra- traumatic story you can think of is at the center of the circle, I want you, you know, and we have concentric circles, like out from there, like a, an onion, talk about the peel of the onion. <laughs> What's the story that you know is somewhat traumatic, but is like really lightweight, you know? Often it's something in their teenage years because it's because they feel more, uh, they have more agency as a teen. And so they say, oh, well, I remember one time I got in a fight with my dad and da 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 da. And then what I do is I say, okay, we're only going to talk about this for about five minutes. That's it. Even if after five minutes you seem to be okay, we're just going to do five minutes. I'm going to ask you how you feel. And then I want you to monitor how you feel between this session and next session. Now, some clients will get frustrated. They'll be like, I want to, I don't have time for this shit. I got to, I got to move forward. And I'll be like, not going to happen. Not on my watch. You know what I mean? Like, uh, not until I know I am not harming you are we gonna are we gonna go faster? So you're gonna have to trust me. Now, most clients are hesitant to talk about their trauma narrative at all anyway. So most of them don't care that you're going slow. Slow is good. Yeah. So then you come back to the next session. You're like, "How'd you do?" And they're and they're like, "I felt you know pretty pretty fine. I felt okay. Okay. So we know that that story on that level isn't too fast. It might have been too slow. Better too slow than too fast." And so you just start experimenting, and at some point you'll you'll find out, ooh, that story screwed them up for for a few days. That story pushed them over the edge. Okay, now as a therapist, you're as it's an art form. You're starting to gain a a lay of the land, like what stories tend to be too fast and what stories tend to not be too fast. How they look when they're going too fast, you know. Um, while I'm on the topic, another thing is is that if they write in a journal and they bring it into therapy, you want to have them actually be very careful about reading the journal in therapy because it can be overwhelming to to just speak out loud something that's in your journal. There's there's a different level of exposure when you're just journaling as to when you're telling your therapist about something. I actually had that happen with a client once where she came in and she's like, "Oh, I, you know, I wrote in my journal," and and I'm like, "Oh, great," you know. I mean, she already wrote it down, so it should, it should be fine. And as she's reading it, she went through the roof in terms of her, her flood flooding. And I felt like I was a terrible therapist. I'm like, I, sh- you know, and I saw it happening and I didn't do anything because I was scared or something. Anyway, the point is, is that uh, you just have to take babysits. And then the fifth and final step is just flat out trauma narrative. You're no longer experimenting because you kind of know the lay of the land and this is imaginal exposure and um, you're close, closely monitoring the effects in between sessions. But anyway, so person that's writing in, it sounds like you have skipped to step five. You have not done step one, two, three, or four. And as a result, what's happening to you is after the session, you are in your car and you're dissociating and you're shaking shaking uh, because when you are exposed to something that terrifies you, your body becomes terrified. Yeah, Your body, this is a neurological thing. It's like waterboarding or something. Like most people, when you're being waterboarded, knows that they're not actually drowning. But guess what? Your body does not fucking care about your, 
your prefrontal cortex notions about how the world works. Logic out the window. It freaks out. Yeah. And just like your you know, prefrontal cortex is like, well, you know, I'm just talking about my trauma. Your body, which is, you know, most of your body is not your prefrontal cortex, <laughs> uh, it does not understand that and has very good reason to go into overdrive when you are getting close to something that is terrifying to you. So, I mean, I hate to bash on your therapist, obviously, but from my, from your description. Now I will say that I did this when I first became a therapist. So I, I it's, it's an understandable problem. You in made our, these mistakes. Yeah. 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 I remember one woman, uh, I always think about this woman when I think about this is, this is when I was in private practice. This would have been, I don't know, maybe seven years into my profession. Is when I lived on Beacon Hill. Do you remember? Oh, yeah. And she came in and, um, in fact, if you look to your left, do you see some leaves that are pressed into a, a frame? Yeah, I noticed those. Yeah, she actually made that for me oh, nice. from my maple tree that was in my front yard. Um, so I worked with her for a long time on very different things. And then she comes in one session and she's like, okay, I think I'm ready to talk about the childhood abuse I went through. And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, this is after years of therapy. And I'm like, wow, like what a, what an honor that you feel. You know, she's like 45 and, yeah. and this is the first, she's like, I've never told anyone this before. And I'm like, oh, wow, you know, great. Um, what do you, what do you want to tell me? And then she proceeds to tell me about, you know, some pretty horrific abuse she went through. And I'm listening and I'm compassionate and I'm there with her and I'm I'm warm and I have empathy and I like her, you know, we have a good relationship and I'm 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 there with her. Leaves the session, I never saw her again for the rest of my life. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. And I, you know, for for a long time I was completely boggled by this. I was like, well, we had years of therapy, things were going well, various different issues. And then she comes in and she has this, what I could thought of a breakthrough session, right? Mm. Where she disclosed these horrible things. And I never saw her again, which is a classic uh, scenario for going too fast in trauma therapy. The client will be overwhelmed, will have a massive spike in distress and dissociation or PTSD or whatever that will throw them into a tailspin that can that can last for months, if not years, by the way. And guess what? They don't want to go back to therapy because it hurts so much. It was so horrible that they're like, I can't go back there. They just, their body knows, like, if you go back there, there's a chance that's going to happen again. And why would I want that? So... Sounds like a case of apparent competence. You know, that's like when uh, the therapist... Um, overestimates the capacity of the client because they look fine because you know you've had all this experience together and it looks okay and you're going to do this thing and sure it's going to be hard but all the signs point to oh they're up to it and then you know it's it's an easy thing for any of us to fall into right it, yeah it's a good and way it sucks yeah but yeah yeah that's that's a good way of putting it it that's a part of the phenomenon that makes it a blind spot for therapists, I think, is that the client looks competent. Yeah. And they are. They're competent. But sure. when you don't understand the way that trauma works in the body and in the brain, then it's like, well, if they, if they want to talk about it and they're fine right now talking about it, then it should be okay, right? And it's like, no, 
No, no, no. Yeah. Any trauma expert knows. And I am very frustrated, as I'm guessing people can tell, about this whole issue uh, for a number of reasons. One is is that this person who's writing in is going through this, and it sounds like this person who's writing in actually likes their therapist, and the therapist probably is a good therapist, but yeah. just doesn't know what the fuck they're doing when it comes to trauma. The other problem is that I'm very frustrated is that our industry is not doing enough to educate therapists like this. Mm-hmm. Every therapist knows not to have sex with their clients. Some, some therapists do have sex with their clients, but every therapist knows they're not supposed to have sex with their clients. Why? Because we educate everybody about that effectively uh, for the most part. But when it comes to trauma therapy, I would guess the vast majority of therapists are doing what this therapist is doing. Going too fast. They don't even know what they're doing. Yeah. They, they don't understand PTSD. They don't understand exposure therapy. Yeah. They don't understand, you know, DBT like you do oh, and well, stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, they, they're just like, well, if they want to talk about their trauma, let's talk about it, you know? And uh, it's it's incredibly upsetting because... We like to think of ourselves as a profession that is based on science and ethics, and it's like there's these examples where our profession is – we're just a bunch of fucking hacks. <laughs> we're just a bunch of idiots who, like, got a bullshit degree and, like, hung a shingle and is just, like, doing, like, some total bullshit, you know, harmful crap. And it's like just being a nice guy doesn't make you a good fucking therapist. True. It's driving me nuts. Mm. You're a professional. You're 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 akin to a medical professional. Medical prof- you know, physicians don't just show up and go like, "Well, I'm going to have good intentions and my good personality, and I'm going to go do I'm going to do good medicine today." Like physicians have to look at research articles and look at treatment plans and side effects and stuff. Like if you're a therapist, you got to fucking know. You know, you, you pay attention. Like read an article. <laughs> like you know, take a refresher class or something. It's it's very upsetting to me. And then we have supervisors who also don't, you know, help people with this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we have clients who are coming out of session, dissociated and increased PTSD. I mean, just I just want to highlight what this person is saying. I often find after a session that I experience derealization and increased PTSD symptoms that can last for days. Yeah. Days. Um, uh, you know, it's, so, so one of the questions you're asking, emailer, is how do you become more aware of your distress and how, how to decrease your level of distress? Well, we've given you some ideas, but really, you should be talking with your therapist about this. So I guess if I were you, if you like this therapist, I would tell your therapist the following thing, some version of this. So I was listening to a podcast, and uh, according to the podcaster, you're a hack therapist and you should go to hell. No, just joking. Um, what you should say is, I am, I, if you like the therapist, this is what you should say. I like you as a therapist, but we're going too fast because after the session, I have a increased, you know, PTSD symptoms. And I, I'm just, I, I feel like I need more ways to cope with those feelings before we go into my traumas so that I can have skills to cope with things uh, as it's happening and, and in between sessions. If you say that, you know, and the therapist is like, oh my God, I'm sorry. Yeah, let's do that. Then great, go for it. But if your therapist is like, huh, then I don't know. I, I would be, or I would not talk about your traumas with this therapist and just talk about other things. I don't know. Hey, only thing I wanted to add to that is um, part of the problem isn't just that um, 
the person needs distress, you know, tolerance stuff, they also need to titrate the cues. Like they need to start at the outside of the onion. Right. And not, not go so they're going too deep. Too right. Fast. So, right. So that's another thing you could be doing. Yeah. Emailer is just talk about things that are more easily handleable, you know, but honestly, you know, given the way you describe the situation, you're an intellectualizer and you're not aware of your emotions. So it might be hard for you to even know what the outside of the onion is because you don't even know naturally because of your upbringing, what your emotions are. Right. So, um, yeah. All right, let's take a break so I can purge myself of my anger and rage. What do you say? Sounds good. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, do so now. It's the way that we know that you like this thing that we're doing. Also, email us if you're having trouble with the premium feed. There's always problems you know, accessing patron-only episodes, uh, so don't hesitate to email me. I will help you and guide you. My email is contact at psychologyinseattle.com. Also, buy my book, Multi-Role Clinical Supervision. Good book. Ah, thanks. Well, you helped me write it. Well, I read it. It's a good book. <laughs> and you literally wrote some passages that retained. Uh, maybe two paragraphs of the whole good book. It's a good book, folks. He's just being modest. Um, I mean, I'm proud of the work, good. but it was a slog to get me to write actually a, a, a passable book. I learned a lot reading it. Yeah. Um, I learned about a, a lot, you know, from your guidance about how to how to write. I, I don't think I ever realized how much of an art writing oh. is, even in sort of academic writing. Yeah. You know, the the options. Like, for me, when you would throw out suggestions, you're like, how about you word it this way? I'd be like, oh, yeah. I mean, it's English words. I, I know them. You, you do. But to have the creativity, you know, it's... To me, you know, as a musician, it's akin to uh, improvising, right? So, like... Oh, yeah. As a, as a guitarist, I am not a good improviser on guitar. So I can't play solos very well, even though I can play other kinds of things uh, pretty well. But there's something about the ability to just invent something in the moment. Because, you know, guitar solos, I can often play them, but I can't come up with them, you yeah. know. And so whereas like with uh, vocal stuff, I can, I can invent vocal things pretty easily. Like, like this podcast. Uh, right. So to the ability to come up with sentences on the fly for this podcast on a particular, you know, idea or topic is something of a skill. You have to pull ideas out of thin air and put them together and communicate them well. Well, when it comes to writing, I just I, I am developing that skill, let's just say. Mm-hmm. And to see someone who has the ability more uh, developed, it's interesting to see. It's like, oh, you can just add a, add, you know out of thin air, you can come up with like a really good way of putting something, which is not a skill of mine. Also like our Facebook page and play our Tuesday tougher bluff game. Also, and also I've been posting, I I'm, I'm doing another thing of, uh, maybe I'll do it with you today, actually uh, posting the shirts that people wear when we're podcasting. Oh, so you have a sun, sun mountain lodge. Now I got my Penn state sweatshirt. <laughs> It's not on you anymore. Uh, join the Facebook fan group and have fun with Amy and Lyndon and April and Emily. Tweet Birdo at Psych Zero Birdo. Also, 
you should know that if you're trying to find older episodes and you really want to listen to a particular episode, go to our website. That's where all of our archive is. If you're trying to look for old episodes on your on your phone or on Patreon, it's really hard to do. So go to the, the website. It's not super easy, but um, it's easier uh, to, to do that. Also, you can just email me and I might be able to help you find an old or episode or I'll just send it to you. We have another email here about sense of self that I wanted your opinion on, Bob. All right. I just listened to your episode today and was super fascinated with the stuff on developing a sense of self. I related to a ton of it. I had a question about it. I have this weird thing where after I leave my therapist's office, he feels gone or not real and I panic. Oh, wow. I email him every couple days to make sure he is still there. He, he said he's okay with me doing that, and he always responds affirmatively. Do I email him because I am having a poor sense of self? It seems dumb to me that I... It seems dumb to me, and I find it embarrassing. Oh. I'm guessing most people don't email their therapist every other minute to ask if they are still real. Do you have clients like that? You said corrective experiences help with building a sense of self. Does this fix it too? What do you say, Bob? I say I feel sad as I hear that, and I really like that despite how the person feels about themselves, they send the damn emails anyways, because it's, it is corrective. And yeah. hey, man, you don't choose to feel the way you feel. How is it corrective? Um, they're finding out not only is the therapist there, but actually the therapist gives a fuck. Right. So presumably you email her because of your issues with sense of self uh, or, um, you know, the reason why you have an issue with a sense of self is because you were abused, mistreated as a young person. And the world taught you and people taught you that they're not really there. And so when you test to see if you're therapist is really there, then it is a corrective experience for you, as you're saying, as you're saying, Bob, because it affirms that, oh, people are there. They're not going to leave me. I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm held. I'm heard. I'm understood. And it's a very small thing to do for a pretty massive corrective experience. You know, you're panicking three days after session, wondering if, if your therapist is gone. I, I'm guessing that it's not so much that you think your therapist has disappeared, more that you have the sense that um, your therapist might not be reachable or something. Although, maybe maybe the idea that I've disappeared from my therapist's mind? Right. Possibly. Right. Something more rational. I, But, you know, it's also possible that when you were, say, three or four or younger— our idea of object permanence were was still is still developing, and so you could and children often do will believe that people will have completely disappeared from the planet. You know, like your mom doesn't come home for six nights, and you, as a two year old, you could just think, "Well, she's gone. the 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 abyss has taken her." Because you know, you don't have this notion when you're one, two years old that your parents have a life that they do stuff outside of, you know, your universe. And so it can feel as though a sort of a magical sense that, that they've disappeared. So what's I'm, object permanence? Uh, you know what it is, but you're just asking me to say it. Right? I am. Um, it's a uh, developmental milestone yep. for humans. And I'm guessing animals that are smarter ones that, um, uh, is the ability to know that an object 
is still in existence when it is outside of our vision or our perceptual um, awareness. Nice, nice sentence. So if you pulled that one out of thin air, didn't you? I did. <laughs> nice. So, and you can, and kids like to play with this. You know, you put your hands over your face. Oh yeah. And then you do peekaboo. Uh, you know, when you put your hands over their face, their brain. Uh, for the most part, thinks you have disappeared. Right. Because they can't see your face, so it doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden, boom, your face is right there. And it's very it's very um, exciting to them to have that alternating between uh, slight terror of you being gone and then like, oh, yeah, you're back, you know? Um, and it's like it's like a horror movie version for a, for a two-year-old or a one-year-old, you yeah. know? Like, oh, my God, you're gone. Oh, my God, you're back. Yay, you know? And uh, it's exhilarating, you know, you do that to a six-year-old, they're like, I know you're behind your hands, you yeah. know, that's not exhilarating to me anymore, because I have object permanence. Right, you got know? that down. Yeah. Uh, with those kids, you know, you play a game where you act like you're dead, and then, no, just joking. Um, yeah. Or you take their Halloween candy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, uh, I agree with what Bob is saying. Um, it's... You know, it's it's great that you're doing this. It'd be so much worse if you were suffering yeah. and beating yourself up and ashamed of yourself and not doing anything. So you, you, you do have some shame, which is not fair to you, but it's not overwhelming your uh, assertiveness and your healthfulness of reaching out and saying, hey, are you still there? <laughs> Just want to know. And to tell you the truth, as a therapist... If, and it sounds like your therapist gets, gets this. This is a small inconvenience for a wonderful thing. Therapists who like their jobs and are doing it for the right reasons are providing therapy not for the money, not for the, you know, all the riches and fame that doesn't exist, but mm-hmm. they're doing it because they actually want to help human beings. You know, that's why they got into it. Not every therapist is like this, but I would say most are. And for a therapist to have to respond to an email once every three days, which probably takes him or her, you know, five minutes at the tops. Or more like less than a minute. Yeah. Yeah. To know that this is providing you with a very important corrective experience that is literally changing the neurons in your brain so that you will be less symptomatic in the future, more self-compassionate, more regulated, better relationships, uh, to provide that little bit of sacrifice to get that huge gain, I'm sure to the therapist it's well worth it. Right. It's a very small thing, so don't think anything of it. Um, yeah, that part of you is not going to obey your sense of logic, nor should it. Right. So hang in there. Attachment uh, corrective experiences are experiential. They're not intellectual. You can't tell someone with insecure attachment that people are going to be there for you. You have to prove it. And one of the ways that therapists will do this is by doing things like this. Um, Do I have clients like this? No, I don't have any current clients like this. Although I I guess if I thought about it, I have some clients who um, kind of do this. It's sort of, maybe it's like a veiled attempt at this. You know, they they tend to be more Mm -hmm. So are we meeting today at five? You know, that, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, so maybe that's, you know, I guess it's possible that could be part of it. Do, do you have clients like this? Well, right now I'm sending 
all I'm sending a reminder email to practice skills to all of my students in my early DBT class. And I think that it serves the function of, of course, reminding them to practice, but also the function that they matter, that I care, that they're there, I see that. And, um, you know, my aim is really getting people down the road, so I'm happy to do it. It takes me no time. And I think it provides both a practical and also an emotional help. Yeah, that's interesting to think about a therapy, because it's not a common practice. No. To... Just make it a matter of your schedule that um, once a week you're going to email all your clients with a tip of the day or just how's it going or hello or something. Um, And how how meaningful that would be to to, to people and how, again, it would help people move down the road to attachment security. Right. Another email from patron Nick. Uh, We know patron Nick from the live shows. Nick writes... What does a recovered borderline look like? Oh. Can someone relapse mm-hmm. with with BPD? Bob, what do you think? That's a great question. Uh, so I'm thinking on my feet, thin air. Here comes. In DBT land, they say there's four stages in in um, uh, recovery. First stage is hell and getting out of hell. So hell is like crisis. Self-harm, impulsive behaviors that cause all kinds of wreckage, that's hell. Getting out of hell, they call quiet suffering, wherein you're not doing, I'm not doing my impulsive behaviors, I'm not trying to kill myself, I'm not doing any of that stuff, but I really am suffering. I'm just doing it quietly. And then the third one is where I'm building a life worth living and um, I'm having normal problems. Normal problems is like, you know, how are we going to pay for college for the kid? That's a n- normal problem. I would so say. to get to this step, they've been through a significant amount. Oh yeah, this of takes a while. Therapy years. And, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then the fourth, the fourth part is for those people who like seek. Well, you know, Marsha's a Buddhist, so seek enlightenment. You know, like going to the mountain, as she calls it, which is like um, I th- I don't know exactly what she means, but I think it's like self actualization. Yeah, self actualization. Oh, cat actualization. Cat. What? Uh, the person asked, can a person relapse? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe if there was enough trauma and stress, some of the old stuff would come back. But I'm thinking of one person that was in in the research study where I worked, and um, she did great. She didn't actually have individual counseling. She had just the skills training part of things, right? And she did really well on that, and life wasn't easy. And a year after she got done the study, she met the, you know, the, the study uh, person running the study. That's Marsha Linehan. And Marsha said, did we help you? And the person said, yeah, I can have all my dreams, which I thought was really lovely. And then uh, she's someone I stayed in touch with. And about two, three years after she finished the study, the year of treatment, she and I were going for a walk. And she was telling me a horrific story about she lost her job. She lost her place to live. She lost her funding for school. She got some kind of illness that was causing pain in her extremities, and they didn't know what the hell it was. And she found a place to live, but it was a shitty place. It was really chaotic environment, and she had an enormous commute and, you know, all this stuff. And I says to her, why aren't you depressed? And she said to me, I don't think I can go back to that anymore. And she was 
hit, uh, pointing at the things that she had done that she had developed, like sort of like, I don't like saying it this way, but like new habits, that it's sort of like a one-way door. And so um, as far as I know, she hasn't. In fact, she actually is one of us now. She's a counselor down there, so down south. how did she get there, do you think? Oh, okay. So I probably told this story here once before. There's one day during during her time in the study, she's laying in bed. She's super depressed. She's been in bed for days. And she says to herself, I'm just going to sit up and swing my legs off the bed. And she doesn't say it this way, but she says, I'm going to swing my legs off the bed. And, you know, I might just lie back down or I don't know, or I'm, you know, but I'm just going to swing my legs off the bed. So she sits up and she's sitting there for a moment. And then she says, all right, I'm just going to get out of the bathroom. I don't even know what I'm going to do. When I get there, I'm just going to go and I might come back to bed. And she goes down to the bathroom. She takes a shower. The idea being, I'm just going to focus on what am I doing right now? What am I doing right now? Not what might I do, not what I might end up, but just what am I doing right now? Then she says, I'm going to go eat something. So she goes and she gets some food. And then she's like, I'm going to go play my guitar, even if I play it for just a half a minute. But and did she do these things at the guidance of DBT people? Yeah, we talked about this as a skill. Yeah. Right. And this is um, uh, really participating and mindful to the present moment and so forth. And the problem with depression is it's the downward spiral. So you feel depressed often for a good reason. You start doing depressed things. You start act, uh, thinking depressed thoughts and you carry yourself down the spiral. And what she was doing was reversing the spiral. And this went on for two fucking months, two fucking months of solid of, I'm just going to do what's in front of me right now. And I'm going to let go of, I'm still going to have those thoughts, but I'm going to let go of thoughts of falling back into bed. Even if I fall back into bed, I can... I have the choice to get back up if I want. I can do it again. It's not like there's, you know. So she just stuck with it for two solid months. And, you know, you can imagine at the beginning, she got zero benefit. No better at all. As Who would? You know, you play your guitar for half a minute. Big deal, right? So she really hung in with it two, uh, two months of that. And then I think she just kept it going. Like, I think she really did develop a habit for herself. And I think for her, it really is a one-way door. She can't go back. She can't go back to that awful hell hmm. which is awesome yeah there's a reason to do this kind of yeah. thing that's powerful yeah yeah so um just to kind of reiterate what bob is saying um what does recovered borderline look like oh yeah i didn't even get to that part uh well you kind of i mean you described do you want to elaborate? no 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 i'm good oh um yeah i mean i think you're describing recovered borderline uh, this this person yeah recovered meaning that they no longer qualify for the diagnosis of borderline personality right and yeah what it looks like is being miserable in a normal way you know because uh, the thing is is everyone is uh, somewhat miserable and somewhat anxious and somewhat borderline for that matter mm. and somewhat um, alone and somewhat hurt and somewhat stressed. So that's what recovered borderline looks like is you're below the threshold and you're in the realm of normalcy. Which is existential angst. Yeah, just regular life problems. Yeah. Um, but uh, perhaps more specifically, recovered borderline people are more secure in their attachments. Right. They're less reactive to perceived abandonment and criticism from other people, um, you know, stable attachments, and just feeling better like what – Bob described it with that client. And sometimes that can mean ongoing struggle, but it it feels less severe, obviously. Right. And uh, because when 
people with borderline begin their journey of awareness, they're often totally unaware of how they are triggered and why they're triggered and that their triggered behavior is not reasonable. You know, they think they think it's the world's fault or their conscious mind thinks it's the world's fault and that um, mm. all their anger is justified and the world is – people are shit and that's why I'm the way that I am, you know. And now deep down they think it's all their fault. Sure. But um, anyway – uh, and so with uh, DBT or DBT-like therapy that I don't do DBT, but I do DBT-like stuff, um, you match that up with trauma recovery often and corrective experiences. You do that over time with a borderline specialist in either DBT or relational therapy for a number of years, and you're going to see much less symptoms, and therefore you're recovered from borderline personality disorder. Um, in all likelihood, you're probably always going to be on the spectrum, kind of, because it's not something that you that is often changeable in that way. So there's sensitivity. Yeah, or you yeah. just have a style of dealing with attachments that are more in the borderline direction. You know, yeah. um, same with narcissism or anything like that. You ask patron Nick, can someone relapse with BPD? With BPD? Yeah, I mean, it's not in the sense of like cancer relapse or something, or. Um, alcoholism relapse, you know, uh, it's more, well, I guess it could be similar. Anyway, the point is, is that there's not a distinct line, right? It's just a label that we apply as clinicians that'll help us guide treatment. So it's, it's not like there's this definitive line between relapse and not, but yeah, um, someone could have bad life circumstances or they could drift away from their normal or their more functional ways of thinking and behaving and can absolutely relapse, uh, you know, they could start cutting again. They could start their negative uh, thinking again. They could get involved in substance abuse again. Um, yeah, absolutely. In fact, I would say that of the people that I've treated with with borderline, it's it's um uh, they are uh, likely to quote unquote relapse frequently because, like I said, you know, you always retain. In my experience, at least you're on the spectrum, um, and no, there's not. You could do ten lifetimes of therapy and probably not get rid of everything that's on the spectrum. You know, I agree with that. Yeah, um, meaning that um, you're a little bit more paranoid about losing people. You're a little bit more uh, reactive to perceived abandonment, criticism. A little bit more uh, uh, worried about you know, your partners, uh, a little bit more sensitive. Um, so, you know, uh, if enough life circumstances happen or stress or bad sleep or something, you could see how uh, someone could, you know, fall off the wagon, so to speak. You know, Anything to add to that, Bob? No, it sounds good. All right. Um, well, thanks for helping me answer these questions, Bob. They People have been emailing me these questions for a while, and so they've been waiting to be answered. Well, we're getting to it. Yeah. Um, if I haven't mentioned it already, if you want to apply for the scholarship, $2,000 scholarship for a mental health student, please email us at contact at psychologyandstyle.com for the details. We want to find a worthy mental health student. Uh, I imagine it would be a graduate student, but I suppose it could be a bachelor's level student. 
I guess, yeah, Bashers a little Could bit. Be a, yeah. If that's what they're doing. But honestly, I, I think it's probably going to go to a master's student, someone who's more, you know, actually going to be going into the field, you know? Yeah. Um, $2,000, that's nothing to shake a stick at. I'm not shaking a stick. So apply, do it. And, and if you know someone who's in uh, a student in mental health and a master's program or a doctoral program, uh, tell them about it and uh, make them enter because we want to find that special person to be the first Psychology in Seattle recipient of the Psychology in Seattle Scholarship Award thingy. Awesome. That's cool. All right. Well, that does it for that episode. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. Mm-hmm.